to V-Back Birth Stories, a podcast where Australians share their journey to a vaginal birth after caesarean. We are a safe haven for women to share their own V-Back journeys and through these personal experiences, educate and empower listeners. I'm your host, Mel. And I'm your host, Steph. And this is V-Back Birth Stories. Hi everyone, in today's episode we meet Hannah, a midwife and mum of two living with her husband in Brisbane. Hannah was not expecting her first birth to end in a cesarean at all, but despite a difficult and challenging labour, her son's birth was overall a positive experience. Hannah suffered an early miscarriage in between her son and her daughter's births, but knew when the time came to give birth again, she would definitely try for a VBAC. Her third pregnancy was going pretty smoothly until she was diagnosed with gestational hypertension. Her hospital's policy was to induce, which concerned Hannah as she knew the risks involved with induction and how it could potentially negatively affect her chances of experiencing the vaginal birth she was hoping for. It was her midwife colleagues who restored faith in her and Hannah ended up achieving a swift drug-free induced feedback that even caught her by surprise. We're very grateful to Hannah for sharing her VBAC story with us. It is important to share all kinds of VBAC experiences and we know there are women out there that may need to be induced for medical reasons and we hope Hannah's story and insights will positively assist you as you approach your labour and birth. We just want to additionally highlight a potential trigger in this episode as there is mention of a baby's death in relation to uterine rupture. Steph and I hope you all enjoyed this episode of VBAC Birth Stories. Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today to share your VBAC story. Would you like to start by sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name's Hannah. I'm married to Zach and we have two little ones. We have a boy named Amos, who's three, and Zoe is five months old. And I live in Brisbane and I work as a midwife at one of the hospitals here. And were you a midwife before you fell pregnant? Yeah, I was. For a while, was that? Or... Uh, about two years before Amos. So what were your ideas, I guess, influenced by your midwifery, would you say, as to what childbirth was sort of like in your mind before falling pregnant? Yeah, I think I had sort of two views. I think just personal experience. My mum had four normal vaginal deliveries, same with my husband's mum. So I think in that sense, I thought birth was just sort of a normal thing. Everyone goes through it and they come out the vagina (laughs) in that sense. And then I became a midwife and realised sometimes it can be a little bit more complex than that and sometimes that doesn't happen. I worked at a a tertiary hospital, so saw a lot of high-risk women, just experienced lots of different kinds of births. So I, I don't think that scared me. It just sort of opened my eyes into not everyone's birth goes normally and and naturally like that. And how was your pregnancy with Amos? Yeah, my pregnancy was very good with him. I had no morning sickness. He grew normally. I mean, reflux was probably my worst (laughs) complaint. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did you have the Gaviscon by the bed and like (laughs) try sleeping upright? I I think I, I, I took an anti- reflux medication for most of it but yeah that was about it for his pregnancy it was really good towards the end of his pregnancy my blood pressure had gone up a little bit not enough that I needed to be medicated not enough that they felt they needed to do a scan of him or anything like that it was more just just sort of keeping an eye on it I must have been about 38 39 weeks that was right towards the end there they offered me induction around that point but I declined it at that stage because I thought in my head, well, they're not worried enough about it to medicate me or even scan him to see if he was growing okay. So I thought they can't be too concerned. And when I did decline it, they didn't seem to worry. I sort of got to a few days past my due date and they offered it again. My blood pressure was still stable. It was still fine. And that stage I started to sort of get a bit anxious because they were offering it again. I didn't know what to do. Thankfully, I had really good midwives. I was going through a birth centre, so I had continuity of care with a midwife. And I just said to her, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And she said to me, okay, how about we induce you at 41 weeks? So I was like, yep, that's fine. I'm happy with that. 
and she said, go do everything you can to get into labor. I think I must have been two or three days past 40 weeks. So I booked in for some acupuncture that afternoon and I actually did start contracting that night. So I went into labor that night, just early labor. Were you in the birth center, Hannah, because you wanted to try and avoid any medication or you wanted to have an un medicalized birth was that yeah. anywhere in your mind or yeah I think I just wanted that as most women might yeah all <laughs> lovely perhaps a water birth I wasn't too fussed about having a water yeah. birth but I liked the idea of water immersion and I think also mainly just the continuity of care like oh uh, um, yeah so that was really good but by the time they were monitoring my blood pressure I wasn't going to be able to birth in that center anyway because I would have needed continuous monitoring but thankfully I still had my midwife. So that was fine. So that was Thursday yeah. night, but I was meant, I was able to sleep that night. So that was fine. And then got up Friday and was still contracting. I sort of basically was doing maybe two contractions in 10 minutes from sort of that point until basically the end of my labor. So I contracted all day. It was fine. My husband and I went out, we went, had brekkie, went shopping, that sort of thing. So I was still able to go out and not look like I was in labour. And then Friday night, it started to amp up a little bit. I had a friend who was training to be a midwife and a doula, and it was sort of that evening. It was getting a bit more intense, and I thought, no, I do want Julia here. So I called her. She came over. We went for a walk. They were getting pretty intense and then basically laboured all night with it slowly getting more active, I suppose. I was in and out of the shower. I was trying to, you know, stay hydrated, eat a lot. You know, as they say, eat while you can in the early stages. And it sort of got to early hours of the morning. I was tired. I hadn't slept at all. I really just wanted to, I think, just see my midwife and be in the hospital. So we called her early hours and I said, yeah, I want to come in because it just wasn't picking up as much as I thought it would have in that length of time. I thought I'm still sort of doing maybe you know, two to three in 10. And I, I just kept remembering, I'm still able to eat a lot somehow. And in all my experience, a woman in active labor should not be able to eat as much as I did. So I thought I'm not progressing. I'm not sleeping. I'm not resting. I just want the midwife to break my waters or something like mm. that. So we went in that morning. It must've been about six, six thirty-seven. So that was the Saturday morning. Not surprisingly, I was one centimeter, which Yeah, I wasn't surprised because I thought I'm not doing the things that I would have usually seen women do in in an active labour. So I wasn't disappointed at that. I knew it just wasn't progressing. So they took me around to the birth suite. They tried to break my waters and get a clip on the baby's head. So like a little um, scalp electrode clip to help monitor his heart rate. They couldn't do it at the time. And then I had to put a drip in my hand. I was vomiting. I got into hospital and all my food was just coming up. So they wanted to rehydrate me. So they were putting a drip in my hand. And then while I was vomiting, I ended up breaking my own waters just from the pressure of vomiting. Mm. It was really yucky, actually. It was just, you know, being sick and contracting and having this drip in my hand. They must have got the clip on his head at some point. I think I had a few examinations. The drip had um, tissue, so it wasn't working properly because I, it was obviously just not put in terribly well. And it was just, I was just getting to the point where I was really over it. I had a number of examinations. This drip wasn't working. And I was just, I remember just being like, I just want to get in the shower because I just need something for this pain. And I finally got into the shower and I had to have like my hand out straight, not moving it so that the drip would work. I was being sick. I had re- I still had reflux. Um, at that point, I had a student midwife as well. So she had come and she was wonderful. And my husband was there. And so I was finally in the shower thinking, okay, now I can sort of do this. Your midwife was with you too? The continuity of care midwife? Yeah, she was. She wasn't absent at all, no. She was just so busy doing all this paperwork and trying to get everything sorted that I didn't see her much. And I remember at one point, like I was just, I was vomiting still. It was awful. And I just, I just want an epidural because I'm, I just, this is awful and disgusting. And by this stage, you were laboring for almost two days. I mean, you'd been experiencing some form of low level contractions at least for almost two days. So your body was quite uh, depleted and exhausted by this stage. 
And I remember saying that to her. And I knew the pain, like the pain was bad, but it wasn't. I was still managing it. I think it was just, yeah, like you said, the whole, the whole picture. I was tired. And I remember her coming in and saying to me, just wait so I can have a chance to midwife you, like really care for me and look after me. Because I think she knew as well that she had been so busy with paperwork and mm. trying to get doctors out of the room because they wanted me to have Sintosin on to ramp it up a bit, but I had declined. So anyway, finally in the shower. And I think I must have been in there for maybe, I don't know, half an hour, maybe an hour. And the midwife came in with another midwife and said, oh, you've got to come out of the shower. His heart rate's dropped. And so at that point I couldn't hear it because we were in the shower in a different room. So I couldn't hear the monitor or anything like that. And we came out and they jumped me on the bed because it just wasn't coming back up. And then they had to call everyone in because it was still low. And the doctor came in again and he examined me. He was like, okay, so you're three centimetres dilated. And at this point I'm lying on the bed in tears because I could just hear his, the heartbeat. And I just, I think I just knew what that meant. Um, and I remember while he was examining me, he was like telling me that, but he wasn't sort of removing his hand. And I remember saying, is there a cord there? Like I was worried that maybe, you know, there was a cord there and that's why, you know, his heart rate has dropped. And he was like, no, no, everything's fine. And I just remember yelling at him saying, well, get out because I know where we're going. Um, and mm. so that happened. And then. Um, were you angry at this point because you didn't want to have to go in for surgery? Like where was that stemming from? Oh, I just wanted my baby out. <laughs> I, mm. I, at that point I wasn't. Worried. You were just done by this point. Yeah. 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 So, um, and I remember my husband saying, oh, maybe that's your heart rate. And I was like, no, no, my heart rate's, you know, through the roof right now. Mm. So at that point they were basically rushing me off. I said, cut my, cause I knew sort of what I said, cut my clothes off. I don't care. Like it's all good. Just get me to theater and, and take my baby out. And that was really hard because at that point it was classed as a category one section, which would have meant they would have put me under a general. So they actually held my husband back. And he didn't know what was going on because he just assumed he would be coming if I was having a cesarean. So he was totally not prepared for that because I didn't prepare him for it either because I just assumed I'd have a normal birth. What classed it as into category one? Was it the fact that his heart rate was non-responsive at this point? Yeah. So they'd moved me into lots of different positions, but it was still really low. Like it wasn't recovering. So they classed like it was a... Bradycardia. Um, yeah prolonged yeah so I think by the time we got to the theatre it was about eight minutes and when we got to theatre thankfully his heart rate actually had recovered a little bit so it was okay and they downgraded it to a category two which meant I didn't have to have a general and I could have a spinal and my husband could be there so that was amazing and at that point like I was still a mess and in a state and the doctor said look his heart rate's okay but he still recommended a cesarean whether or not you know, I could have gone back and, and just sort of monitored him. I don't know, but I just said, no, no, that's fine. You take him out. I just, I'm done. And yeah, so we had a beautiful Caesar. We had so many people in the room as usual, but we had someone who basically just took photos the whole time for us. So it was real. like, we have so many photos of his birth and it was beautiful. We didn't know he was a boy and the doctor held him up and they could just see his, you know, boy bits dangling there. So <laughs> it was, it was really, and it was really nice, like the resuscitation bay where they sort of take them to just to check them over quickly was right in my eyesight, which I, I didn't have at my own hospital where I work. So I really loved that, that I could see him. And we still got skin to skin in theatre. So as soon as the paediatrician checked him over, and he came out screaming. He was fine in the end, which is good. There was no cord or anything like that. What was his positioning, did they say? Or Yeah, so he came out posterior, like with a really elongated head. And he actually had quite a lot of facial bruising. So on reflection of that labour, I think he just got stuck and it just wasn't happening. It wasn't progressing. And I think I didn't, at the time of my labour, especially at home, I didn't think that he was posterior because I didn't have any back pain or sort of 
things like that, which a lot of women experience or any pressure. My midwives had always said he was in, you know, an anterior, so a good position. And so it just didn't click in my head that he might be struggling to get through my pelvis. And he wasn't big. He was just three kilos and that was a week over. So he was reasonably small for his gestation. Mm -hmm. I think he just struggled to get through (laughs) some. Was your midwife with you in theatre? Was she able to make his birth? Yeah, yes. so she, she scrubbed up and received him from the doctors. Yeah, she was wonderful. Were you relieved at this stage, obviously, because it sounded like you were really exhausted. You probably hadn't eaten or slept properly yeah. uh, for two days by this point. So was there relief and elation at that time? Yeah, or? yeah definitely. I just I, I could not fault it. Like I even remember getting my spinal And I had like the wardies holding me, telling me to breathe through my contractions. The care was just amazing that I just felt that that was the right thing. And I remember my my midwife came up to me in recovery afterwards and she said to me, Hannah, you needed to have that cesarean. And that was really, I don't know, just really good for me because I think I just assumed I would have this normal birth as, you know, my mother and mother-in-law did and I didn't. And so... I think even just her saying something like that was just really helpful and made me feel like it was the right decision. Yeah. Yeah. It can be affirming at the time. Yeah. Yeah. To hear that when you've just been through it all and and come out the other end. How did you go with feeding Amos uh, and all of that following the cesarean? Yeah, fine. Feeding him was fine. Breastfeeding him was relatively easy. I think I just had sort of the, the usual teething issues slightly sore nipples but he fed really well I think I sort of fed him in a few different positions just to sort of keep him off that wound I remember feeling really bloated after the cesarean like I remember feeling more pain from the gas and the bloat than I did actually from the caesar scar afterwards when you came home I mean that sounds like it was a fairly positive experience Mm. in in theatre in the end when you came home and in the months that followed did you ever think about it or had you just sort of put it out of your mind where did you go when you got home I think I went through probably different phases like there were certainly points where I went oh if that was at my hospital they might have just (laughs) monitored him for a bit and then not done the Caesar and just sort of seen what had happened afterwards. So sometimes I was like, oh, you know, maybe that could have been different. I could have had a normal birth. But I think I just kept coming back to, you know, that was a really good experience. Like I was, I was, I was cared for, I think. Like I think that makes all the difference. And I still made those decisions. And at the time they were the right decisions. And I remember even like once my husband said, oh, maybe you didn't need to have that Caesar. I thought, yeah, maybe not, but we did. And that's okay. That's fine. And I think like, it's just so in the moment. And like, I'd heard that sort of boom, 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 heart rate, you know, at my own hospital in different scenarios. And it's awful, like to listen to a baby's heart rate, which should be double that. And I'm like, that was, quite scary. that was the right thing for me to panic at that point. And that was my baby this time. So if I panic when it's other women's babies, of course, I'm going to be worried about my own. Did the hospital give you any advice about future pregnancies? As a midwife, I suppose you may have known about VBAC and, yeah. you know, at that time, but I was just curious, did the hospital give you any advice, particularly? Yeah, Mario? yeah. I think. I think the doctor came, one of the doctors came and said, you're fine to have a VBAC. There was nothing. They didn't do any extra cuts or anything like that. And there wasn't anything in particular that would exclude me, I suppose, from them allowing me to have a VBAC. Did you know you wanted one? I think I probably always knew that I would. Yeah, I don't think I would have ever thought that I would choose to have an elective Caesar. I don't think, I mean, that never sat right with me during my pregnancy with Zoe it was just for me I just I couldn't sit well with walking in to hospital not in labor and having a cesarean so I think I just sort of always knew I I would at least try. Did you have any issues conceiving Zoe? I fell pregnant when Amos was 18 months and had an early miscarriage and then 
fell pregnant with her maybe four months after that. So not, I wouldn't say I had trouble because I was still breastfeeding Amos at that point. We fell pregnant with Amos on the first turn, basically. And I remember my husband really worrying while we were trying to conceive our second that it wasn't happening. But for me, I thought, well, I'm still breastfeeding. So there's still sort of hormonal things going on there. So I night weaned at 18 months, fell pregnant, miscarried. And then Amos must have been about 20, 22 months. And I fully weaned him then and then fell pregnant straight away. So there must be something in my hormones breastfeeding wise. Zoe's pregnancy, did you have any complications throughout that pregnancy? Um, it was a pretty good pregnancy. It was a bit harder because by the time I was big, it was summer. So that was very different. I did have really low iron with her. And I remember thinking, oh, this just must be what a summer pregnancy is like. Like I, I remember having to sit down while making my son's breakfast and things like that. Oh, this is awful. <laughs> I had my a blood test and my midwife said oh no your iron's actually really low so I started some supplements and that made just the world of difference and I thought oh this is good this is better my blood pressure did go up at I had a check at about 35 weeks and my blood pressure was officially high <laughs> properly high this time so I was started on some medication for that just sort of like the standard low dose introduction medication at what stage do they class that as preeclampsia and what's the difference between that and gestational hypertension? Gestational hypertension. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to know the difference between. Yeah, so I, I had gestational hypertension. To become preeclampsia, it needs to have another system involvement, basically. So something like protein in your urine or sort of neurological complications where you sort of see stars and have headaches. Okay. So I didn't have any of that, thankfully. So I was never preeclamptic, but they do keep monitoring you. So from about that 35 weeks, I would have twice weekly. I think they pulled them down to weekly checkups towards the end, but they do a urine test each week. They do a blood test each week. I would have a monitor as well, like a CTG monitor every time I'd go into the hospital just to make sure it wasn't progressing, which it never did, thankfully. Had you usually had high blood pressure outside of pregnancy or this was something just specific to your pregnancy with Zoe? Yeah, so it was just I would occasionally get white coat hypertension, so sort of that anxious feeling you get when you go to the doctor and because you're feeling anxious, your blood pressure goes up. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if that's – I think that's more common in healthcare professionals because we know that it'll do that. (laughs) So otherwise, because I remember in – like during Zoe's pregnancy, I'd sort of keep an eye on it myself at work and it was always fine. But, yeah, once we sort of hit that end of the pregnancy, it decided to go a bit further. It's sort of, did you didn't have any symptoms at all? No, it's just no. something that you picked up with the blood yeah. um, monitoring. Yeah. Was this similar to what you had experienced with Amos at all? Yeah, yeah. so... It was similar, but it was just sort of, I suppose, that step further where they actually had diagnosed me with it and they were medicating me for it. Um, Whereas with him, it must have just been sort of on that borderline. So they were just keeping an eye on it. During your pregnancy, before the, I guess, the hypertension and everything came Mm. up, did you do anything differently to prepare for this feedback? Yeah, I I did a few. I mean, I read everything. I must have been like I don't know, five weeks pregnant and I just wanted to find some books on, on VBACs and I ended up finding this one called Silent Knife. It's written in like the 80s or something like that. It's really wow. old. But it was, Good title, like Silent Knife. Oh, no. It's the one that um, <laughs> Hazel mentioned this in her episode as well. That's really interesting. Oh, right. It's, yeah, by, it, yeah. it's by Nancy, Nancy Wayner and she's like, apparently the midwife that coined the term VBAC. Um, Don't know if that's true, but yeah. And it was a really interesting read. Like it's so old, but a lot of the stuff, you know, has basically just now been proved by a lot of the evidence that they've done over the years that VBAC is safe in the right situation with the right care. When you were sort of seeking that out and you were five weeks pregnant, did you have sort of like a fire in your belly, like I'm going to have a VBAC? Or were you more sort of, well, well, I don't know, but I'll stay open-minded about it? I think my main drive for having a VBAC was 
if I wanted to, you know, my husband and I would like to have sort of, you know, our ideal is maybe four kids. And in my head, I didn't want to have four seasons. So that was pretty much my only real driving force behind that. And I think because what scared me more with going into the next pregnancy and having a Caesar was the complications from multiple Caesars rather than the complications from a VBAC. That's just what scared me more. I had worked on a high-risk antenatal ward and we had lots of women with sort of abnormal placentas that can happen subsequent to a lot of Caesars. And I think that's, yeah, scared me more than the risk of a uterine rupture. Did that bore you at all in the back of your mind, uterine rupture? I did. I wasn't, I think it sort of changed throughout. So I wasn't scared of the risks. I knew what they were. There was actually a, a woman and her family who had been at my hospital and labored and actually had had a, a rupture and subsequently her baby had died because of that. And that was when I was, I don't know, maybe about 28 weeks. And that really shook me and I didn't know sort of what to do at that point because that was really hard because we know the statistics are really low and it's really uncommon, but there's actually still a family and a face behind that, you know, one in 200. And then the, I think it's like one in a thousand for your baby to die. Yeah. Um, And that's devastating, but there's still someone who there's still that that person who is the one in a thousand was she a v-back this this person okay yeah she was yeah so that was really hard and I remember I went and talked to my GP about it and she was someone who just had two elective seizures because she didn't want any risk of anything like that and so that like that really not burdened me but like that really laid heavy on me and um, but at the same time yeah, it still didn't feel right for me to just have an elective Caesar at that point. So it was still real for me having seen that, but I still wanted to give it a shot because I knew I was, I really trusted my care providers. I really trusted their care. I knew I was in a hospital where theatre is, you know, 50 metres, maybe a bit longer than that, but just around the corner if something was to happen. And so I did still feel safe going into that and things that you did to prepare so you were reading the book yeah the the silent night Uh, what else did I do I looked into spinning babies so I did a lot of I purchased like the daily essentials spinning babies routine I think because I knew it was sort of perhaps you know maybe pelvis related like why couldn't my three kilo baby fit through you know my normal sized hips (laughs) I suppose so I sort of looked into that and I'd always been sort of like I don't know, like a tight person. Like I've never been someone who can do the splits or anything like that. I feel my, like, my ligaments are really tight as well. Not just you, don't worry. <laughs> I was shocking. Yeah, I was always so bad at dancing. And the girls could do the splits except me anyway. So I, I started doing that and I was really big on that and getting my alignment right. That I read up all and all that and I was sleeping properly and and things like that. So that was probably the main thing I did. I also read Juju Sundin's birth skills book, which was awesome. I really loved that. And I think having been through my first labor, I think I sort of changed my mindset. Not that I was ever sort of against a hypnobirthing, but I just remember thinking I couldn't breathe through those contractions the way they were telling me. And I really loved Juju's way of saying, actually, no, labour hurts. Like, this is hard work. So what are you going to do about it? And here are some skills you can do. And I think that just sat better with me and my personality because I'm, I've got like a very low pain threshold. So I thought this breathing is not working for me. Affirmations do not work for me. Yeah. I need to just, I'm going to have to just work with it. And her yeah. book was amazing. Were you with the same midwife that you had for your son's birth? Yes, I was with the continuity of care midwife. I was actually at a different hospital. So I was at the hospital where I worked because I I knew I was going into a VBAC. And in my head, I thought, well, I might have a little more wiggle room at a hospital I work at with people I know and doctors that I know that if I did need to sort of not, I suppose, push the boundaries a bit, I felt confident in that. So, yeah. 
I went to that hospital and I had a great midwife look after me. Back to what you were talking about before, about the gestational hypertension. How was that on your mindset? You knew you wanted to try for a VBAC. Were you worried about how this could affect your, your VBAC? Yeah, I was. For me, I just sort of kept going back to what all the research says about it. And at that point, I knew that most likely I would be induced. I thought that they would induce me at about 39 weeks. That's sort of what I'd experienced. And I thought, great, I'm going to be a VBAC. I'm going to be induced. I've got hypertension. I definitely put on too much weight in my pregnancy And those were sort of all things that sort of decrease your chances of having a successful VBAC. And I remember thinking, oh, this is just getting worse and worse. Like, how am I going to do this? Like, I'm literally ticking off or crossing off all the things that improve my outcomes of a VBAC. So I still knew I was going to do it, but I thought, oh, my chances are just going further and further down. And if Amos was truly obstructed in his labour, like that just... (laughs) that completely wipes me out for any of this. But I had midwives who were amazing and they didn't even entertain that, (laughs) that worry in me. They just Mm. were like, no, Hannah, you're going to come in, you're going to be induced, you can have your baby and it's going to be fine. Mm. And that was really good because I was just a stress head again and I thought this is all going to go wrong. Um, Did you want to say no to the induction at any point? Were you sort of pushing back against them or had you accepted that that would need to happen? I knew it would happen. I knew I wouldn't go into labour early. I didn't with Amos and I just knew in myself that I wasn't someone who would go into a a labour early. I knew that induction would double my chance at a rupture. So that scared me a bit. But I remember just, again, really trusting my midwife and saying, am I crazy to do this? Like, is this unsafe? And she just said, no, it's, it, you're fine to do this. This is okay. This is when the hospital I was at was doing them a lot more inducing on a VBAC. Had a good gap between my previous births. So it was nearly three years. And with her just telling me that, that no, Hannah, this is fine. At the point that you had agreed that you were going to have an induction for the VBAC, how many weeks were you? So the conversation would have been probably from about 37 weeks that I was going to be induced. And at that point, we sort of hadn't talked about when it would be. I remember sort of looking up my hospital policy, trying to figure out when it, when they would tell me. But there was nothing sort of really clear cut mm. about when the best time is. So thankfully, I was actually, I was able to talk to some of the senior doctors about that and sort of say, well, well this is my picture. What, like, what do you think about that? And I remember one doctor saying to me, well, if everything stays normal, the scan of Zoe was normal. She was growing fine. There was no issues there. He said, you can go to 40 weeks if you want to because the evidence is sort of a bit, it's not really clear on just gestational hypertension. The research seems to have sort of hypertension in there, preeclampsia in there, and also it's sort of quite jumbled, the study he got me to look at. So he said, given you're, you're on that sort of lower risk end of the hypertension, you're probably fine to go to 40 weeks. Yeah. And so for me, I was happy with that and that's what I wanted. And the doctors, again, they were good. They just said, yep, that's fine, 40 weeks, no dramas. Yeah, yeah so it's interesting. So we know generally with VBACs, they try to avoid the use of um, induction. Um, were they planning to use a balloon catheter with you or had, had that been spoken about and they were avoiding syntocinon or? The way that my hospital does it, they don't do prostaglandin gel. They generally would say that's contraindicated for a VBAC. So, yes, they, they do the balloon, but the plan is still to use the syntocinon. The doctor had said 40 weeks. Did you at that point go try do things like you did with your first labour to I don't know, to try and induce labour yourself naturally? I did. I went and got acupuncture again. That's pretty much all I did. I I think at the time I just wanted to feel like I was doing everything I could to avoid an induction because I knew that an induction might decrease my chances of a VBAC. I'm thankful now, though, that it didn't work because generally with they're happy, they were happy to induce me from no labour to labour but they don't augment a labour. So if I was to go into spontaneous labour and for it to be sort of pittering along like Amos's did, 
they wouldn't then put the syntocinon up because I suppose there's a risk that, you know, there's a reason your labour isn't progressing. We don't want to push this on a Caesar scar and risk a rupture. Do you want to get into the birth story and how the induction went? So we decided on a due date baby because my midwife said, well, you can choose. These are the dates I'm working on. And I actually chose her birthday. (laughs) She was working on that day. So um, we had a, a birthday buddy with our midwife, which was lovely. Anyway, so I came in the evening when I was 39 weeks and six days. And my midwife met me that night and she popped the balloon catheter into my cervix, which um, wasn't as scary as I thought it would be. I thought it would be really uncomfortable and painful. With the balloon catheter, they, they generally describe it as like a mechanical induction so it basically just forces your cervix open some women do still go into labor but it's not they don't expect you to so they generally wouldn't say or recommend to wait for labor to start Um, so i knew the plan was catheter catheter out break your waters and start the hormone drip because like i said before if they didn't start the hormone drip straight away and i did start laboring a little bit Um, They weren't going to, you know, put it on at lunchtime or anything like that. So I was happy to have it from the get-go and just do it properly, I suppose. So putting it in, it was actually fine. I didn't have any pain. I thought, oh, can't even feel it. But that was until sort of a few hours later and I started to get some contractions with it as well, just sort of mild contractions. And that's when it became really uncomfortable and just heavy and sore because I'd sort of have like a pain but then you just have this heavy ache in your vagina afterwards lingering so it just sort of felt like a constant pain all night long and it was really I've now learned that I'm just a vomiter in labor (laughs) that night I ended up vomiting through the night again from this labor pain even though it wasn't too bad but that's just obviously how my body responds to to labour. So I will know for any future pregnancies to not eat anything during my (laughs) labours. I wanted to ask you, actually, when they inserted the balloon catheter into you, was there any comments made about how dilated were you or whether you were? Yeah, so no. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing, my midwife had been doing stretch and sweeps. I'd forgotten about that in the lead up as well. But I only ever got to, I think I was still one centimetre and I still, I think my cervix was still reasonably long. So not, not close to having a baby. Oh, so did they, you know how we we hear people say like before an induction, was your cervix favourable? And if I'm not mistaken yeah what was that was that what was that like for you were you given an assessment before the induction took place I, as I to... would have I would have been I can't remember I don't think it would have been very favorable <laughs> oh <laughs> I because there was still I remember there was still length to my cervix it was still only one centimeter and I don't think it was sort of what we would say is anterior I don't know that it was completely posterior so I don't think it was super hard for my midwife to find but it wasn't as if she sort of was able to just plop it straight plop it put it straight in yeah (laughs) was there advice to you to try and get any rest during the time that the balloon catheter was in and could you or was it too painful no so there was so i i took all the medication i took a sleeping tablet and some panadine fort i think from my memory of caring for women we would just yeah give them pain relief and say it's not too bad you, you sleep through the night oh, God. <laughs> that, was, that was not my idea now I feel so guilty for anyone I said oh it's not too bad <laughs> so I just it was like I was vomiting and then I just remember basically all night long I had to sort of like move my legs all night long to just sort of counteract this pain and it was just so constant because of this balloon And I just remember every hour or so I would go into the bathroom to see if I could pull it out. Yeah. Did it sort Um, of feel like a dull period pain? Is that how it felt? Yeah. Yeah. Just really, just that real yuck feeling. And I remember saying to my husband, like, I'm going to need an epidural straight away. Like, this is awful. Like, how? I'm not even in labour. 
anyway, it, the night was fine. I still was able to lie down and rest. I think at one point I, I got up and have a shower. I finally was able to pull it out at 4 a.m. And it was the most amazing relief ever. It just sort of all went away. I, st- I think I did sort of stopped tightening. Yeah. And so the pain, did this pain subside? And did you have regular contractions at that point? The pain sort of completely went away. I still was having pains, but they weren't as quite as close together. And I didn't have that awful pressure after them. So I was able to get a little bit of rest, but I knew I would have to be up at six. I think they said my midwife will come get me at 6am to take me downstairs to break my waters and start the induction. So I got a little bit of rest in the morning, ate breakfast stupidly. (laughs) There was a little bit of a delay. So I think my midwife came and got me about 8am. It was actually a different midwife because I think the idea was with my previous labor, I never really established an active labor. So they just sort of assumed it would be you know, I'd have the baby in the afternoon, evening, probably. So my midwife had her buddy midwife to come and start the induction. So that was eight o'clock. And yeah, she was wonderful. She still talked through everything as if I was a lay person coming in, which was really wonderful and good for my husband as well. And just truly like one thing that really struck me about her was she really gained my consent still, even though that I knew everything that was going to happen. You know, she still asked me, is it okay if I pop a drip in your hand? Is it okay if I do this? This is what I'm going to do. So that really stuck with me. So yeah, she popped drip in my hand. Another midwife on the team came and made us tea and biscuits for my husband. And, and then it she broke. lovely. Like- oh, it was amazing. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was, yeah, I had such a lovely team of midwives. <laughs> the doctors, yes, they still came in that morning and just sort of went through my risks again to say, you know, you know what you're getting yourself in for. There's, you know, a one in a hundred chance of a rupture with being on Syntocin on. I said, yep, that's fine. And that was the last I saw of them. So waters were broken. The drip was started. I put some nice oils on to make the room smell not like a hospital. I bought my headphones, like those ones that go over your ears, because I thought that would be good to just sort of be in a zone. So I put some music on and I remember my midwife saying, you know, choose some music that brings back good memories, like of fun times. So I remember having like corny pop music playing and I was dancing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> do tell. What's the artist? Oh, <laughs> it's probably like Maroon 5 or something terrible like that. It's fine. <laughs> but it was fine because no one else could hear it. <laughs> yeah, so I did that and my midwife was great. Like she got the bed sort of not looking like a bed but more just something to support different positions And then it was getting a bit intense and so my midwife was doing some massage and stuff like that, which was really nice. And then I was sort of amping up a little bit. So she said, do you want to get in the shower? I said, yes, that's good. So I got in the shower and that's when I started to use my birth skills from Juju. And the ones (laughs) that really got that I used was basically my vocalising was seemed to be something that worked for me. So I basically just... Oh, I don't remember. Moaned or groaned or yelled. Oh, I can't remember. I made a lot of noise. <laughs> and I remember I had my stress balls as well because I was in my head. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use the stress balls. But I just couldn't somehow, I couldn't coordinate them properly. And I couldn't bang them like consistently like she told me to in the book. And so I remember at one point, I think I threw one across the room because it just wasn't working. Anyway, it was getting real. It was getting pretty intense. And I remember my midwife calling my other midwife saying, I think you better come in. She's getting a little bit vocal. (laughs) And I thought, oh, no, like, surely I'm not that far along. Like, can't be. Anyway, so we sort of kept going and my primary midwife came in and I remember just saying, this is terrible. Like, this this is so awful. And she's like, yeah, I know it is. That's basically all I did. I stayed in the shower, I vocalised and then... Sorry, can I ask you, Hannah, when you said you stayed in the shower, were you still connected to the hormone drip, the syntocinone? And- yeah, yeah. So that was still on. I think by this point, my So you were just holding me. your arm out of the shower, but you were still able to get in the shower? No, that or- was my, my, I think my, again, they knew what I wanted. They knew I wanted to be active. So she, when she put the drip in, she put it in really well. 
and she taped it down really well so that that could get wet. It's nice to know that that's possible because I think a lot of women fear induction for that reason, for, for not being able to move and have the freedom of movement. So I had the continuous monitoring. At the start, I just had the straps on my belly, but I was sort of moving too much or something. So they did end up putting the scalp electrode clip on again. Um, And that also just allows, yeah, freedom of movement. So I was in the shower just basically with me and my husband and completely uninterrupted. So they were, they could see the baby's monitor, but they didn't have to come and, you know, adjust anything or yeah, they were there, they were present, but I was in my zone and I didn't have to be interrupted by them at all. Yeah. I got to the point where I thought, okay, this is enough. I can't can't do this anymore. My stress balls weren't working. I couldn't tell if I wanted the shower hot or cold. I was just sort of losing it a little bit. And I said to my midwife, I think you need to examine me. So it was, this was 11 o'clock and I said, no, you need to examine me. Like I can't, this is too intense. And so she, she said, yep, that's fine. And so I came out, she examined me, I was six centimetres. And I said, no, nah, I can have an epidural, thank you very much. <laughs> so she went and she called the anaesthetist and set that all up. And all I'd, I just remember thinking, how am I going to sit still for this? Like I, I look after women in labour and just assume that they're going to sit, like tell them they're going to sit still. And I was just thinking, I can't, I don't know if I can do this. Anyway, the... Anise just came in and I remember saying, you better be good at this. Like, you better be really quick. <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't know this, 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 this fellow. Um, and then I was sitting there on the edge of the bed. He'd painted my back. And I remember my midwife had sort of her name tag around her neck. And I just remember clasping her name tag, like staring at it like trying to sit still and I kept sort of standing up and she's like are you okay and I was like I can't do like I can't sit still for this like this is ridiculous and I got off the bed and I was like walking around and they're like you know what's going on and I was like I sort of had a feel to see if there was a head there and I was like I'm not fully dilated like I can't be like I was just six centimeters and I started grunting and pushing and the midwife said oh maybe just jump back up on the bed, Hannah. We'll just have a quick look. And all I remember is my husband saying, oh, we can see a head. <laughs> and I was like, wow. oh, okay. So at this point, what? you you didn't have the epidural in the end. You just stood up and said, I can't stay still and had this moment of realisation that things had obviously progressed a lot yeah. more in a short space of time. Yeah. And it was, it was funny, like, cause I remember saying to the midwives, I was like, I think I'm pushing. And they're like, yeah, I think you are. But I don't, I didn't have that overwhelming pressure. Like I didn't feel like I wanted to push in the way that other women had described it. I thought, yeah, I'm pushing, but maybe. And I thought, no, it, I bet my baby's posterior. I bet this is just sort of that premature pushing, like in any way, so they sort of could see ahead. They hadn't, they didn't examine me again or anything. And one of my midwives said, look, you can still have the epidural if you want. Because I remember then saying, I can't push for like, you know, you, you push your first baby and it takes an hour and a half to push a baby out. I thought, I can't do that. Like, I'm in so much pain. I remember them saying, Hannah, it's not going to take an hour and a half. Like, you've progressed really quickly. And I said, all right, well, let's just do, <laughs> let's just do this, I suppose. And so I jumped up on the bed and I was, I was happy to be sort of on my, I sort of positioned myself like flat on my back. And they thought, and they said, oh, Hannah, do you want to be in that position? Do you want to be on all fours or something? And I didn't really want to be on all fours. I thought, no, no. But I thought I should get off my back though. Like, I know that's not, you know, the best way to push your baby out. So I sort of flipped myself a little bit. I remember... Right at the start of my labour, I said to my midwife, can we turn the baby's heart rate off so I can't hear it? Because I just remember having flashbacks of of that. So I was pushing. It all seemed to be going fine. The baby was coming down. But I do remember the midwives just, just sort of looking at the screen with these funny faces on. And I was like, oh, is everything okay? And they're like, no, no, it's it's okay. 
but you need to give this 110% because we don't want to have to cut another <laughs> cut another midwife or give me an episiotomy or anything like that. So they were obviously worried about her heart rate. I, I hadn't seen it yet, but I trusted them that, you know, they knew what they were doing. They were very experienced. And it just sort of, again, gave me the strength and motivation to push with all my might. So I did. And I don't even remember them telling me to pant. I think I just pushed through everything. I Even when there wasn't a contraction, I pushed. Yeah, so she birthed beautifully and um, she sort of got tangled with her cord and the, the clip because the clip sort of has like a bit of a wire that trails. And so that sort of got a little bit tangled. But yeah, she came up onto my chest and she was fine and um it was all lovely and i've actually got a video i got my one of the midwives to just sort of video a bit of it and i was re-watching it the other day and I, i'd obviously never watched it with sound on and i was listening to it and she comes out and all i splurt out i was like i think i just got torn in two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh no and i was like oh my god and i do remember thinking oh my gosh, like how much have I torn? Um, yeah. It was just a second degree tear. So it was, it was pretty normal for a first birth and they stitched that up and that was fine. But Do you feel funny. a ring of fire? At, like it, did that happen or? No. I, I, look, it, oh, I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think you're just in such a state. You don't yes. have drugs. I just, yeah, and it was so quick. Like I, I'm not even sure how long I pushed for. Because when I think about it, I asked for my epidural at 11 and she was born at 12 o'clock. Yeah. Wow. So it was all pretty quick. So um, you must have been going through transition at that, that stage where you, where you yeah. were sort of saying, look, I, I can't go anymore. Just give me yeah. the epidural. Yeah. 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 And here I am. I'm thinking just like, it was just a really nice reminder that dilation doesn't mean everything because I was obviously starting to transition at yeah. that six-year mark. Yeah, um, that's right. And I think my midwives knew that. Like they were mm. looking at me holistically. They were looking at how I was reacting and responding. And it was just so different to Amos's labour where it was so slow and it was just one of those things where it was like, well, I can't be progressing that quickly. Like this this isn't how I labour, but, you know, yeah. it just shows how different they can be. And she was actually bigger than he was and... Um, she was 3.2 kilos, so not, not big, but mm. just bigger. Was the drip still on, the hormone drip, like throughout the pushing uh, phase as well, or was it switched it, off at any point? It actually was switched off because I demanded that they switch it off. Because <laughs> I think I think that, like, at the point where I was about to get my epidural, I, I think that's why I asked for it to be switched off because I couldn't sit still and I thought, I don't want these contractions to keep coming, even though they did and they would have. I just said, can you just turn it off? So they ended up turning it off and just stayed off while I was pushing. But generally they would have kept it on. It was just that I was being <laughs> demanding. Take us to the moment when Zoe was born. How did you feel? And- oh, I just thought I was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. And like, oh, it was just like, did I just do that? Like, I just pushed my baby out. And it was awesome. Like I could, I just like, I was so elated and I was, yeah, thought I was superwoman, obviously. Um, and I just remember thinking, I did it. We did it. Like, and I even remember my husband, like, it's so funny. He's beautiful. During the labor, he was like, you looked terrible during Amos's labor. Like you looked awful. But this labor, he's like, you were glowing. He's like, you just looked so beautiful through it and you did amazing. And so he was, he was really proud of me as well. I just, (laughs) yeah, it was, I was glad it was over because I was yelling the place down and I thought, oh my goodness, my like colleagues are out there and they can hear me. And I think my unit manager, her office was sort of right across the doorway. And my midwife said, oh, I, th- I think the manager's pretty happy that that baby's out. Oh, so, but that, it was, it was fine. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Before you left the hospital, before you were discharged, did anyone talk to you about future pregnancies for yourself? Because you were induced for this one. Did they 
say for any, like give you any advice for future pregnancies? You'll be getting induced again? I think that would be dependent on if I had hypertension again, which I think the chances are pretty high. And I think now that I've done it and I, you know, I did it well, I suppose. <laughs> it happened, you know, reasonably okay. Yeah. I think I'd be scared of that. And I don't think I'd be, I think I would still do things like the spinning babies and stuff like that. But I don't think I'd be, you know, spending the hundreds I did on acupuncture to try and do it because, yeah, you know, I, I had a, a positive induction. Yeah. yeah. You would be fine going through that induction process again for another uh, another labour, obviously, because you yeah. you know it could work for you and all of that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I'd just be much less worried about that. What would you say to women who do need to be induced for their VBACs? What, what advice would you have for them? I think definitely, like, I think you still need to know your risks of it and just sort of, I suppose, think about, you know, what was your first Caesar for and what can you perhaps, you know, if there is anything to sort of, you know, get around that or work through it. So for me, it was, you know, maybe my pelvis wasn't in the best shape to fit that baby through. So, you know, that's what I sort of did. And in my mind, that's why I think the labour was a bit quicker and she obviously navigated that a bit better. And um, She's um, so cute. (laughs) Yeah. I think her eyes like, are gorgeous. <laughs> massive, aren't they? I, think, I think the care provider is is really big and and making sure they know what you want. It's hard to know if it was because you know I was a staff member there. I think that definitely plays a part in people sort of not thinking I'm yeah someone who just wants to risk things just to have a vaginal birth. But yeah just being confident and um, and know that it can happen. Like like I said earlier, I was so worried because I thought, oh, I'm being induced now. That's just another thing that's going to decrease my chances of this happening. Mm. But, you know, even if it was sort of, I don't know what it is, 40% that do, there's still, you know, women in that, you, you could be that woman who it does work for. So just sort of keep that in the back of your mind, I suppose, or in the front of your mind. If you did end up having another cesarean, how do you think you would have maybe felt, um, you know, about that? Yeah, I I think I would have been fine having another Caesar. I had sort of a funny thing in my mind. Like in my head, I was like, well, I've got no chance of having a VBAC because I've got all these things that are not on my side. But at the same time, it never even occurred to me that I might have a Caesar. Like I still just assumed I would have a vaginal birth. Like it was still somehow seated somewhere in me that it would work and it and it did so I think obviously that was stronger than my you know all this research that was not on my side oh well thank you so much (laughs) thank you so much Hannah for sharing your story and your very unique experience with us and I think there's a lot to take away from that I learned a lot of things as well just listening to you um some positive encouragement for those women who who are yeah. in a situation where an induction is necessary and yeah. yeah so thank you so much we really appreciate you coming on and and sharing your experience with us Pleasure. <laughs> thank you for having me it's yeah like I remember when I was pregnant sort of seeking out you know, VBAC stories just because it's so nice to hear other people's stories and be encouraged by them all. So, you know, when I heard your podcast, I was like, oh, you know, like. <laughs> Did we come out when you were still pregnant with Zoe or? No. no. no it yeah, was, I think you'd had Zoe. Uh, yeah. Because I remember like in my silent night book, like there is lots of stories of women who have had VBACs. And I think that's one of the most encouraging things, just real life stories of normal women who have VBACs mm. and yeah, not getting so caught up with you know the evidence of everything, which I was very prone to. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you for listening to this VBAC story. If you like the show, please subscribe and feel free to leave a review. If you would like to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for VBAC Birth Stories. If you have a question or you'd like to express interest in sharing your personal story, email us at vbackbirthstories at gmail.com.
VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.